Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 15. Now, if you're visiting this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles uh, in the chair rack in front of you that you are welcome to use. Uh, if you are here this morning and visiting and you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, we want you to know that's okay. That's not some kind of mandatory requirement. You can just follow along. I will read the passage we're focusing on, and the other passages that I refer to will be on the screen. And so we just want you to know that. Well, we are continuing today in a series that I have been doing for all of 2017, and that is, what is a disciple of Jesus? What does a follower of Jesus Christ look like? And we have been doing kind of a systematic theology of what it means to be a disciple. And so we're going to continue with this series through all of December. And then in January, I will begin a new sermon series. I have specifically and deliberately saved the subject that I'm looking at this morning for later in this series, for this time. And that is, we are going to look at a disciple and the authority of the Bible. I think it's one of the most important issues we could consider when talking about what is a disciple and what it means to be a disciple. This week is Thanksgiving week. We will be gathering with our family and friends on Thursday maybe before and after that, and we will be giving thanks for all of God's blessings in our lives, the many things that he has bestowed upon us for which we are so thankful. And I just want to give you something to think about this morning. I want to say to you that we ought to be the most thankful above all other things for the Bible that the number one thing we ought to be thankful for is the Bible. Now, some of you may say, well, shouldn't we be most thankful for God himself? Shouldn't we be most thankful for our salvation? Well, certainly those two things are right near the top of the list. But I want you to think with me this morning. Without the Bible, you would not know who God is. Without the Bible, you would not know about salvation. So I want to challenge all of us, above all things, to be thankful for the Word of God, to be thankful for the Bible, for where would we be if we did not have it? I would not know who God is. I would not know what Jesus Christ has done for me to save me. I would not know how he wants me to live my earthly life for him. I wouldn't know any of these things. We know right from wrong. We know good from evil. We know what God expects of those he has created because we have his precious word. And so we are going to look this week and next week, two-part message on a disciple and the authority of the Bible. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, the Apostle Paul, writing to a pastor 
named Titus, who is pastoring on the island of Crete in Greece. And this is what he writes. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, our first point this morning is a disciple and the Bible. A disciple and the Bible. A disciple of Jesus must submit himself or herself to the full authority of the Bible. A disciple of Jesus must submit himself or herself to the full authority of the Bible. This is one of the most crucial issues that any disciple will ever face. Of all the questions that you may face in life as a follower of Jesus Christ, here is the most important question for you. Is the Bible the truth of God from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation? Is it? You must answer that as a disciple of Jesus. You must settle in your heart, in your mind, and in your soul, is this the word of God? Is this the very truth of God himself? Now, there may be parts of the Bible that I don't understand. There may be parts of the Bible that are still somewhat difficult for me. That is true for all of us. But I must believe, I must believe that it's the absolute truth of God himself. I must settle that question in my heart as a disciple. In verse 15, the very last verse of this section, it says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Verse 15 is so important that next Sunday morning, I am going to focus solely on verse 15. My whole message next Sunday morning is going to be just on verse 15. How important is this verse, verse 15? John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Titus, writes this about verse 15. This single verse is one of the clearest and strongest statements in Scripture about the spiritual authority of men whom God calls to minister his word and shepherd his people. The phrase, with all authority, is the foundational truth both for what precedes and what follows it in this verse. That's a pretty strong statement. He says, verse 15 is one of the clearest and strongest statements in Scripture about the spiritual authority of those who preach God's word and those who shepherd God's people. 
we are going to look at an example this morning of why the Bible is so important and how we wouldn't know what to do if it weren't for the Bible. We are going to look at verses 11 through 14. Again, next week we'll look at verse 15. Today we're going to look at an example, an example of why verse 15, why the authority of the Bible is so important. And in verses 11 through 14, we have not the only, but one of the greatest passages in the New Testament on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or how a disciple of Jesus is to live his life or her life. Again, verses 11 through 14 is one of the greatest passages in the New Testament of how a disciple of Jesus is supposed to live his or her life. And we're going to begin where we must always begin when we consider what it means to be a disciple, and that is with the grace of God. If we are to discuss what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, we must always, always begin with the grace of God. The Bible teaches us that the foundational truth for living the Christian life is the grace of God. In verse 11 of Titus chapter 2, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, what is the grace of God? Some of you know this well because you've studied the Bible for many years, but I always want to be sensitive in our church to the fact that we have all kinds of different people with all kinds of different levels of knowledge about the Bible. And as a pastor, I want to be sensitive to those who may never have heard these things before. When we talk of the grace of God, we are talking about his unmerited favor and kindness towards sinful, unworthy men and women who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you come to that point in your life where you invite Jesus Christ to come into your life, to be Lord and Savior of your life, you are the recipient from that time forward of the marvelous grace of God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Because of Christ, he treats us with grace and kindness. We deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. We deserve to be separated from God forever. But he does not treat us as we deserve. He treats us, acts toward us with his amazing grace. But I want to share with you this morning that the grace of God is more than a divine gift. The grace of God is a person. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of grace itself. So when we speak about the grace of God, we only know the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God. So for the disciple, for the Christian, every day, every day we ought to be thankful for God's grace. He loves me. He cares about me. He hears my prayers. 
He is intimately involved in all aspects of my life. He knows my worries. He knows my fears. He knows my joys. He is the one who blesses me every day. I receive his grace. I am so humbled. It's as if I want to be on my face every day. Thank you. Thank you for not punishing me for my sin, but for showing me grace in Jesus. And so it says, the grace of God has appeared. And we ought to shout it from the mountaintops that the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ came into the world to provide a full and free salvation for all who would believe. His salvation is for people from every people group all over this world. His salvation is for the rich and for the poor. It is for those who are famous and those who have are completely obscure behind the scenes. It is for those who are powerful and for those who are powerless. Oh, let it be known that the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus Christ came into this world to provide a full, complete, free salvation for all who would believe. So, the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation for all people. And it is the grace of God that trains us and instructs us on how to be good disciples. Have you ever thought of that before? This is kind of unique in this passage. And it is presented in a way that we aren't used to hearing about it, but the grace of God is a trainer, an instructor, a teacher in our lives. As we think, oh my, I'm so thankful for the grace of God. I'm so thankful that he isn't punishing me, but that he is showing me kindness and mercy through Jesus. And that is our second point, the training of God's grace. The training of God's grace. In this passage... Paul gives us three ways in which the grace of God trains us as disciples. First, the grace of God trains us to live a righteous life. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul says that grace the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness here refers to all false thoughts about God. There are atheists who don't believe there is a God. There are agnostics who believe that if there is a God, we can't know him. It's mystical. He can't be known. There are people who live as if there is no God. There are people who blaspheme God. There are people who mock God. And that may have been you at one time in your life. But now you have the grace of God, which is training you to renounce all ungodliness and to believe the truth of the Bible in what it says about God 
and what he has done for us. We are also to renounce worldly passions. Worldly passions refer to living your life as if God doesn't exist. It is indulging your sinful desires. It is living a self-reliant, self-dependent, self-indulging life as if it's all up to you. There is no God, so whatever I do is what I do. It's all up to me. And Paul says the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see, when a person is genuinely saved, truly converted, and given new life in Jesus Christ, there is a a transformation not only of your nature, but also of the way you live. If you are truly regenerated here this morning, if you are truly born again, it should make a significant, huge difference in the way you live your life. You should live differently than you did before you knew Christ. You see, by his divine grace, Jesus Christ completely reprograms our computers. It's as if when we come to know Christ as Savior, we are given a brand new hard drive with brand new files to access. We now think differently. We now talk differently. We now live and act differently because we know Christ as our Savior and have experienced his grace. Perhaps no verse in the New Testament sums this up better than 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's you in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a new creature in Christ. How can you continue to live the way you used to live? That's kind of the negative. We are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but then he gives us the positive. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God trains us to live this way. And really, all three of those things are really three ways of saying the same thing in different ways. It trains us to live self-controlled. That's in relation to ourselves. I used to desire without any hindrance to indulge all of my sinful, evil passions. There was no restraint. But through the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am now self-controlled, or we could say spirit-controlled. I am now restrained by the Holy Spirit. I now want to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. I am restraining those desires that I once caved into so easily. I am also to live upright. That is our relationship with other people. To live upright means as a Christian, as one who's experienced the grace of God, I I now show love to other people and kindness. I am patient with them. I show mercy to them. I bear with them. I don't give them a piece of my mind. I don't 
treat them like sometimes I feel like treating them because I've been changed. I'm a new creature in Christ. I've experienced the grace of God. I am seeking by his help to live an upright life. And then it says um, that we are to live godly. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Godly refers to our relationship with Christ. We, or our relationship with God himself, we no longer doubt his existence or question his existence. Rather, he is the center of our existence. We love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the treasure and joy of our lives. We now want to pursue him with all of our being to make him the most important part of our lives. We want to praise him. We want to worship him. We want to exalt him. We want to honor him. That's what it means to live a godly life. So the last portion of verse 12 is really a synonym for what it means to be righteous or to be holy. What does it mean to live a righteous life or a holy life? It means to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. For that is how the grace of God is training us. You see, by the grace of God, we have been declared righteous. And we have been made righteous in the sight of God through Christ. And we are now called to live out who we are. If we are truly a new creation in Christ, then let us live like who we are. You see, we are the people. We are the people who seek to live as Christ lived because Christ lives in us. We are the people who seek to live our lives as Christ lived his because Christ lives in us. The grace of God, first of all, trains us to live a righteous life. Secondly, the grace of God trains us to look for and long for the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. While we are renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, while we are seeking to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, we are waiting for our blessed hope. Do you know, folks, that for the entire history of the church for over 2,000 years, Christians have said they are waiting for the blessed hope. And the blessed hope is the return of Jesus. And that's what it's been called. That's what it's been termed because of Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Now, as we wait for Jesus to return, we are certain that he's coming. This is not some fond wish. Oh, I hope he's coming. I think he's coming. He might come. No, we are absolutely certain that Jesus is going to return. So this is not referring to some fond human wish. This is a divinely promised certainty. We know he's coming, and we are waiting for that blessed hope. Oh, verse 13 Don't miss it. Verse 13 is a powerful verse demonstrating the full deity of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, it says we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you notice that Jesus is called our great God? Jesus is fully God. As fully God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a lesser God. He is not beneath the Father. He is one with the Father. He is fully God. And I want you to think of that. We are waiting for God to return. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when it says we are waiting for our blessed hope, the return of Jesus, this is not simply a reference to the rapture of the church, but I believe it refers to the entirety of his second coming. Now again, let me give you a little background for those of you who may not be familiar with this. We are waiting, and we believe in as a church, the imminent rapture of the church, which means Jesus could catch us up into heaven at any time. We will meet him in the air, and thus we will be with him forever, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That is the next event that we are waiting for in the end times scenario. And then after, after the rapture, then comes seven years of tribulation. At the end of seven years of tribulation, Jesus Christ will return, as described in Revelation chapter 19. He will return riding on a white horse. He will be called faithful and true. He will come with the armies of heaven. He will destroy his enemies, and he will set up his millennial kingdom, his 1,000-year rule and reign upon the earth. And I believe that Paul here is referring to all of that, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus to earth. We see those as two separate events, but the Bible really sees them as one, just separated by a small amount of time. So we are waiting for the king to return. We are waiting for Jesus to come. And I want to impress upon you how important this is in living as a disciple. In 1 John chapter 3, in verses 2 and 3, John writes this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now that's important. We know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And now notice this. Everyone, every disciple who has this hope in him, the hope of the return of Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. You want to live a pure and righteous and holy life? Look for the coming of Jesus. What do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? The Bible tells us it could happen at any time. So I want you to see how verses 12 and 13 work together. We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are promised that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if we're looking 
Stay with me here. If you're looking for the second coming of Jesus, you will renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You will live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It all goes together. So the grace of God trains us to live a righteous life. The grace of God trains us to look for and long for the second coming of Jesus. And third, the grace of God trains us to be a joyful people who do as much good for as many people as we possibly can. In verse 14, it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now watch this. Who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous for good works. It says, who gave himself. Jesus Christ died to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem means to buy back. The picture in scripture of redemption is that Christ has purchased us from the slave market of sin. We were slaves to our sin, but he came and bought us and purchased us and rescued us from that slave market. Lawlessness here means to live a life out of control, doing whatever you want to do, indulging your sinful desires, gratifying your sinful desires in any and every way you want. And we know that there are people all over this world who are slaves to their sins. They're slaves to addictions. They're slaves to their habits. They're slaves to their selfishness. They're slaves to their own sinful desires, not even knowing how to overcome them. And the Bible says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to rescue us from our own slavery to sin. And then it says Jesus Christ died to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Oh, Jesus Christ has called out a people, a pure people, a holy people who are his own possession. The church, us, those who have been called out of this world to be his. And do you know what we call ourselves? Christians, and we call ourselves disciples, and we call ourselves the followers of Jesus. In 2015 and 2016, I preached through First and Second Peter, and in First Peter 2.9, we saw this. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brother in Christ, sister in Christ, this is you. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. But I not only died to redeem us from lawlessness. He not only died to purify a people for his own possession, Jesus Christ died, and this follows logically and biblically from those two things. Jesus Christ died to create a people who are zealous for good works. 
I want to say to you this morning that Christians ought to be the kindest, most compassionate people on the face of the earth. They ought to be able to identify us by our good works, by wanting to do good for as many people, to as many people, for as many people as we possibly can. And that has been the history of the church. Thank God for that. Even right now in our history as the church of Jesus Christ, there are Christians all over the world taking the gospel to people from all people groups. There are missionaries right now who are risking their lives and the lives of their families to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the remotest and hardest to reach places in the world. Do you know why? Because we're zealous for good works. There are all kinds of hospitals and orphanages that have been established throughout the world by Christians in the name of Christ. There are all kinds of wells that have been dug for clean drinking water all over the world by Christians in the name of Christ. There are all kinds of people all over the world who have received food and clothing and shelter in the name of Christ by Christians who have been doing good works. There are people all over the world who are being trained in farming techniques in order to sustain and support themselves and their families, and they've been taught by Christians in the name of Christ because we are a people zealous for good works. I have said this from this pulpit many times. So important that we understand this. Our good works do not save us, but our good works are the evidence of our salvation. Our good works do not save us, but our good works are the evidence of our salvation. We are saved by trusting alone in what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. But if you get saved, even as the Briggs family sang this morning, when you get saved, you will do good works. And if you don't, you're not saved. Once you're saved, you will have a passion for good works. I want you to hone in on that word zealous. We are to be zealous for good works. That means to be joyful. That means to be passionate, emotional, about wanting to do as much good for as many people as we possibly can. There is one passage that just says it better than any of us could ever say it. It is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We know verses 8 and 9 really well. We need to always quote with that verse 10. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now watch this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You're saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not by works. But once you're saved, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Oh, folks, the grace of God has appeared. It has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us, training us to live righteous lives, training us to look for and to long for the second coming of Jesus, 
training us to be a joyful people who long, who are zealous to do as much good for as many people as we possibly can. That's what the word of, or that's what the grace of God trains us to do. How can I tell you all that? How do I know all that? You know how? Because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus has brought the grace of God. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus Christ, in his grace and mercy, trains us to live as his disciples. For the Bible tells us so. We are to take the teachings of this passage and declare them with all authority. And we are to say, this is the word of God. In verse 15 again, which we'll look at more next week, declare these things. Notice what he says. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. With all authority. Oh, folks, I say to you again, let us be most thankful that we have the Bible, that God has given us his precious word in a language that we can understand and obey. Oh, whether it's in private devotion or coming together in corporate worship, let the word of God, let the Bible be the center of all that we do. There is a song that we sing quite often here called Speak, O Lord. And it says this at the beginning of the song, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. Oh, that's it. That's it. Whether you're reading the Bible alone in a small group or in a gathered community of worship like this, let us come to receive the food of God's holy word, to take his truth and say, Lord, plant it, plant it deep in us. Let's pray together. Father, in this Thanksgiving week and every week, we are so thankful for the Bible. We are so thankful that you have clearly revealed yourself to us so that we may understand you, that you have clearly revealed to us your salvation in Christ. You have clearly revealed to us how we are to live for you. Thank you. Thank you for the Bible. Let us be faithful to declare it with all authority. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.